Hello and welcome to Potshot. I'm Alex Towles. I'm joined as usual by Seb Hund. No Alex Collings this week as he is off planning a birthday party. Lucky him, he doesn't have to talk about Arsenal this week. We are joined instead by a very able substitute though. We've got Max, uh, or Asna Maz as he is known on the old Twitters. Max, what brand of tissues were you using to cry yourself to sleep on Sunday night? Um, I just, you know, steal my tissues from work, so just the generic kind that they order in large boxes. <laughs> uh, how are you doing, Seth? How, how have you taken, taken the weekend's football? Yeah, I'm... I get in a state of resignation when things... When things appear to go the way they're going, so I've basically accepted our fate and sort of seen the Brighton game as a more interesting thing than a sad thing. Yeah, and I think we'll get on to that. The plan for today is we're going to we're going to try and do something which seems nigh impossible. We're going to attempt to have an intelligent and interesting discussion about whether or not Arsenal have bottled the league. Before that, we're going to talk about the Brighton game because there's quite a few interesting bits in there that Seb mentioned um, if we quietly ignore the uh, 3-0 scoreline. And towards the end, we'll discuss where we go from here and what the rest of the season looks like for a team that suddenly aren't in a title race anymore. So, the Brighton game. 3-0 scoreline, that's pretty bad. But if we take a step back and look at the game as a whole, especially the first 50 minutes or so before Brighton's opener, it actually wasn't too bad a performance from Arsenal. Seb, what did you make of the first half? It's interesting, right? Because I've seen varying opinions on the... That the entertainment quality of the first half, right? Like, the game was stocky. There were loads of sort of interruptions, largely down to an obscene amount of fouling that went unpunished, which, you know, is what it is. Um, but it was interesting to me in sort of most Deserby games are interesting, to be fair, in how different teams combat this very, very specific style of football, right? Like, Everton was a good example of a team that just completely set off them and never engaged in any of their triggers um, and got a lot of joy out of them. Um, it became clear that they weren't going to make the same mistakes they did in the Everton game and were more sharp, especially in duels. They lost a lot of duels in the Everton game and were extremely uh, sort of engaged uh, when they came to the Emirates. But... Uh, we've said in the preview that we were certainly going to engage them more than Everton did. It, it was nigh on impossible to sit off them at the Emirates. Um, and the way we did it was actually really interesting and really good, I found. Like, we gave them, uh, we gave Dunk and Colwell a lot of time on the ball. We didn't really engage in the first pass they play, the second pass they play. And as soon as they tried to progress past that first line, we snapped into them and were really, really good at finding the, the, the right times to press them and created a lot of really, really good chances through that method in the first half. Um, they adjusted second half. They got a lot of joy 
through their sort of changes. Um, slight interesting thing was that uh, Mitoma actually started on the right in the first half, which I think, personally, was more an accommodation tactic for uh, Julio and Chizu, who started on the left, who's far more comfortable there, angles-wise, um, to uh, sort of accommodate the worst player in a more comfortable role. But as soon as they switched that around, they were getting more joy through Matoma burning Ben White, yeah. Yeah, I think the best way to describe our out-of-possession approach in the first half is that it was a really considered press. Like, we were picking our moments, picking who to press, when to press, how hard to press, really, really well. Especially Jorginho and Erdogan were really, really good in that respect. And as you say, we did a really great job of stopping them from being able to play through the lines as they want to. Uh, and force them to go long out wide to Matoma and Enchiso on the wings. Um, there is actually a really interesting Twitter thread uh, by a Twitter user at GunaPete, which I'm going to link in the description to this podcast. If you want a visual example of what we're talking about here, go and read that thread. It goes into more detail than we are here. And he's got some pretty pictures as well. So go check that one out. It's in the description. Um, Max, you also noticed what Seb was talking about, though, in terms of Mitoma being on the right side to start with. Uh, and you thought that helped us out. Um, what? Why, why do you think that was helpful to us? I mean, I think when they really, really found their feet in the second half. Um, it was a lot of joy off of those long balls to Matoma, and his touch is just so immaculate that he was getting it behind us over and over again. Um, I think in the first half, we did a really good job of keeping our pressing to the wide areas, and when they did go for that big switch, it was just a little bit you know, less considered, more hurried, and we won possession back really high up a lot and um you know they they just had a much easier out ball uh in the second half um for a number of reasons uh we'll, I, we'll get into it i think this was a i think this game was a case of like whoever gets the first goal was always going to win um and so i think a lot of their joy in the second half also comes from you know uh a little bit of soft factor stuff where i think if you if you you know concede the first goal on top of everything else i think you know it was really a huge pin in the balloon um but yeah i mean i thought you know in, in the first half we created a lot of really really good situations uh good opportunities high up um we didn't always turn it into a good shot like the you know the final action was kind of lacking um which i think is a theme you know with some of our other games this season where you know we have really good pressing opportunities in the final third and, uh, you know, create good situations, but, you know, fluff the final action a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, anytime a team wants to be pressed and you press them and do it successfully, I mean, I think that's always, you know, a good sign. And, um, you know, they, their buildup is so impeccable and we were just interrupting it in the first half over and over again, um, you know, with these, uh, like Seb said, just really, really, clever, well-timed, you know, pressing actions. Yeah, I, I think that is, like, the key point here. 
Yes, we lost the game. Yes, Brighton's first goal came from a long ball over our press. But the fact that they had to resort to those long balls shows that we were actually doing a really great job out of possession. Brighton want to play through us, like, ping, 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 and get up the pitch in that way, with lots of short, fast passes. They don't want to be launching it over us in behind uh, and setting up 1v1 situations. Even though the wingers are good, like, Mitoma, as we mentioned, burned Ben White. He was amazing in 1v1 situations. But 1v1s are not what Brighton want to be setting up. They want to be setting up... They want to be setting up transitions where they've got a lot more players in support than just one guy running up one defender after a long ball. So the fact that they had to resort to that so often is testament to our ability to restrict their play. And the fact that they scored from one of those doesn't mean that we fucked up. I think it was just really unlucky. And I think... I, I think that's the key word for the opener is unlucky because that Kivior thing, I don't think it was a foul. I don't think it was a foul at all. But if it didn't happen, would he have been on Inchiso's toes and stopping him from scoring? Probably, yeah. So it's just like we got unlucky there where they were able to win one of those 1v1 situations and then get a goal out of it. But that's just them playing good football and us getting unlucky. That's not anything we fucked up with at all and i think it's very important to emphasize that point right like i've watched a lot of brighton games on the roberto de Zerbi, and what makes them so unique is their sort of dogmatic insistence on playing out and playing through their pivots and then progressing from then on and them abandoning that and going for less controlled progression through a long ball towards evan ferguson or matoma is sort of defeating their game plan and sort of admitting they need to change something according to the opposition. And that just has not happened very often this season. And sort of that that's a sort of small morale win you can take out of the game. Even though, you know, we, we didn't win. Yeah, we we did but, not win. But <laughs> generally to to be in a position where you are able to do that to a team that has been so effective and insistent on those things is quite impressive. Obviously, in the first half, we had to make a forced change, which uh, doesn't help. Uh, Martinelli getting injured and coming off for Trossard. Um, and that affected... We, we've talked a lot about Brighton going long. That affected our ability to go long. You could see... When Brighton pressed us in the first half, what we wanted to do was try and set up these quick transitions and get in behind them in a similar way to how Everton did so successfully. Um, and two things stopped us from doing this. One, Martinelli got injured, which meant that we just didn't have that speed in behind out after the first 15 or so minutes. Actually, he got injured like around 10 minutes, didn't he? And he just kind of hobbled on for a bit. So after like the first 10 minutes or so, we didn't have the speed really to do that with Trossard. Uh, and also really smart fouling from Brighton. <laughs> like Seb mentioned how they were quite foully in the first half. And basically any time one of our midfielders span and went to play like a quick ball in behind, they got crunched. 
Uh, and then they also did silly little um, sportsmanship things, shall we call them, uh, like kicking the ball away and stopping us from taking quick free kicks. Um, An injured player walking back onto the field to lay down. <laughs> Not even, not even subtle about it. I will say, I mean, no. um, you know, Martinelli left a, a pretty crunchy challenge on Matoma, and then yeah, Moises Caicedo yeah. went and got revenge and injured Martinelli, and is now, uh, I believe, on Twitter apologizing for that. Such as his devotion to the mighty Arsenal. Um, <laughs> He, he he still he still wants to come. We we yeah. talked about this in January how he was um, in the time he doesn't want to come to Real Madrid. So he yeah. has like four dream clubs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anywhere but Brighton for him, please. Um. <laughs> I saw somebody on Twitter. I have forgotten who. Apologies. Asking if Trossard is our best attacker, not necessarily because he's like ability wise the best, but because whenever he's on the pitch, we seem to look a bit more cohesive. I'm not sure if that scans with this game. Max, what did you think? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought Trossard had a bit of a horror show. Um, you know, he's, we used him in really the, the places where for us, he has been the least effective. So it, you know, it's, I wouldn't put it all on him. Uh, we don't, I mean, he's not looked at his best when he's been, you know, played on the wing for us. Um, and then we put him in midfield in lieu of Xhaka, which I didn't totally understand. Um, I don't know. He, you know, this, this is a game where Martinelli's pace would have been really, really helpful. And then you have Trissard, who's probably our slowest attacker. Um, you know, he's, he's a great player, but we really needed that, you know, that directness, that, you know, that out ball, um, Ramsdale was trying to find the front three over and over again, and they just weren't getting a lot of joy from that. Um, Saka looked honestly like our best defender on the day. And it, it felt like, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if, you know, it's a completely correlated, but it felt like that, you know constant tracking back and trying to take the ball off players deep in our half, you know, meant it was a little bit harder for him to, uh, you know, to then make those really direct runs and help us get out of our half, uh, with those long passes. Jesus, you know, you know, you, he's pretty consistently good at, you know, at beating players, even if they're very, very much, you know, bigger and taller than him, but he wasn't getting a lot of joy either. And then, you know, Trussard is just, I mean, you know, running at a winger like that, trying to take down a, a, a long ball from deep is just really just not a great use of Trissard. And it was it was enforced, obviously, by Martinelli leaving. But um but I didn't I didn't think he looked very good, you know, uh when he was on the wing or when he was in midfield. I, I think he was actually alright on the wing. Like not he didn't set the world light, obviously. But, like, I, I think he did a good job. Like, there was a couple uh, nice little dribbly bits where you could, like, see his close control, and he did a good job of um, getting at Caicedo playing out of position. That, By the way, he was a really good right-back in this game, which is just kind of hilarious. Um, but that's by the by. Uh, I, I think he did, like, did get do quite a good... Eh. I think... Trossard did do quite a good job of getting at him when the ball was on the ground, but as he mentioned, like his lack of pace meant that we just didn't. He couldn't 
burn around him in the same way that um, Martinelli might have been able to. Uh, Seb, what did you make of it? Yeah, pretty much what both of you guys said, like, right, like, <clears throat> with judging performances, it's all about context. And for this specific set of circumstances, we saw in the first half how important both of our exterior runners were. So it did surprise me that we weren't going with the most direct replacement, which would have been Reese Nelson coming on the left side. Um, though I did think Trossard had good involvement in the first like 20 minutes before he just completely faded out and the midfield move was interesting because right like we've seen discussions on it about if that could work if we're in, in sort of low block games we can put him there but it doesn't really seem like that zone really suits him that much especially in deep areas i mean we can make the argument about the he's set up to the second goal but that's just a byproduct of, and I'm more apologetic of that happening to an attacking player in that zone than a pivot player in that zone. Let's actually, uh, on that, on the note of Trossard in midfield, uh, take a look at how we reacted to the first goal and how the second half went for us. Because there were patterns that we've seen and discussed quite a few times in recent weeks. We went behind, um, and then found ourselves not panicking, but rushing in a way that we weren't in the first half. I called our press considered in the first half. In the second, there was a bit more, there's a bit more of a rush to it. We weren't thinking before we acted quite so much and it meant that there were more spaces for Brighton to get into and it meant that Brighton were able to play through us easier than they were before. Uh, this also rang true in possession. We weren't as patient with trying to play around Brighton's man-to-man -man marking. Instead, we were just trying to go and go and go in ways that we've seen us try and do a lot of times when we've been behind in our bad run of form. And it hasn't worked in any of those times, and it didn't work here. On to the subs. There's been a lot made of, like, the being bad, and I don't disagree, but I, I think when you're chasing a goal, you do kind of need to speed things up to an extent and I do see why so I, I see why Partey came on for Jorginho I know because I'm saying this now because I know I'm going to go to Seb and Seb's going to tell me I'm wrong um, I see why Arteta thought right we're behind now we need to be a little less patient and try and force the issue a bit more so I see why he put on Partey for Jorginho but it didn't work that's the thing. Uh, we can talk a bit more alongside this about um, Reese Nelson coming on for Xhaka, because that's why Trossard came inside, and as we've mentioned, that didn't work also. Um, I think, for, for me, that one was a bit like, because eh, like, as much as you want to get Reese Nelson on the pitch, as we've mentioned, Trossard in midfield didn't work. But I, I think I can understand why he brought on Partey. Seb, tell me I'm wrong. As counterintuitive as it sounds, the moment you don't want to go direct is when you're behind. 
Like the moment you start to, in, especially if you do it externally by bringing on sort of attacking players and, and sort of gesturing to the team to go for it, you're setting a sort of panic in your team that gets the ball up the pitch very, very quickly and then it comes back the other way just as quick. And sort of not being able to slow down and gain control before you start to attack them is an issue and especially considering you are taking out at 60 minutes when it's 1-0 and the game's pretty much still in balance you take off your entire midfield like the controlling part of your team and both Shaka and Jorginho and bringing on a an overtly um, vertical pivot and an attacker playing in midfield and that sort of set the tone for it becoming even more transitional, which was never bound to favor us. So that's why I'm, I wasn't very, very happy with that sort of set of subs. The, the other ones are sort of throwaway subs, like bringing Emil Smith Rowe on was weird because we haven't seen that much, but it's the last 10 minutes of the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's, it's counterintuitive that, you know, when you're a goal down, that you do need to like calm things down a little bit. Um, and you know, Arsenal have this season had like numerous really, really good performances when chasing a goal where we've just, you know, layered on shot after shot. Um, I, I just can't really understand bringing off both of them, you know, even if you wanted to keep Jaka on. Or, you know, move him to left back and just gain a little bit more control because we weren't really, you know, pushing Tierney into the center circle and, you know, trying to play a possession game. And so if you wanted to switch to that, I just feel like you need at least one of them. And, you know, controlled possession leading to more shots, that just isn't really what we've gotten out of Thomas Partey recently. You know, he has been incredibly loose in possession and um you know essentially you, you know after that first goal when this team is already i mean i'm gonna indulge in a little soft factor stuff here you know they had a good plan as we've said it was working and then they still didn't get the goal out of it they still conceded the first goal and that can just be a little bit of a gut punch mentally and you know i think I say I say it was a first goal wins kind of game just because I think, you know, if Odegaard gets a better shot, you know, when he when he wins the ball right on the edge of the box, you know, I, and our plan kind of you know is actually starting to bear fruit, I think we can actually build on that, you know. And Newcastle game it was similar where I think it's a totally different game if one of their shots against the post, you know, goes in early. Um but it's just a really really big thing to ask of a team to, you know, after their plan was working, after they were executing it pretty, pretty well, uh, to then try and stay calm, keep doing what you're doing, you know, you're going to get some shots out of it, you know, stay patient. And we took off, I thought, just our most patient players and put on, you know, Partey's been a bit of a loose cannon, um, and then also an attacker in midfield, which is just a big unknown. And so I, I thought, I agree the the second set of subs were just a, you know, 
at, at that point the writing was on the wall but with the first set of subs I, you know I think we really needed you know to slow things down get in our rhythm a little bit of you know sustained possession um, and momentum which Brighton were really really good at denying us um, and instead you know we kind of between Trossard in an uncomfortable deeper position and Partey with his recent form we kind of just had two like giveaway machines and it really really hurt us I think it's also really important to mention that the problem with Partey currently isn't just the stuff that usually is always there with him, like him being overly vertical for a pivot player, which is a small irk, but it's always been there. It's him being completely off the boil post-Liverpool. Like, he has fallen off a cliff for whatever reason that is. Totally. Yeah, I think... So I I was looking at some numbers because like as you mentioned Max like we want to control possession and get lots of shots from that and get up the pitch and hold them up there and Brighton did a very good job at stopping us from doing that. Um, so I I kind of understand why as I've said I I think I'm just what I'm trying to do here is say the thing I said before but better. Um, I understand why Parse came on is kind of a way to try and change that up, but. As we said, it blatantly didn't work, and I've look, had a quick look at the numbers, and the numbers show that it didn't work. So we had 14 shots in the game overall, nine of them came before the first goal, so before the in, and she so scored in the 51st minute, we had nine shots, and then we had five shots in the 40 minutes or so after that. So it blatantly didn't work, and... We should really keep that in mind going ahead because this is quite a few times it just has not worked. I thought it was interesting how Arteta reacted after the game. Like, there were bad performances where he has really valiantly stepped in front of the team and sort of diverted any sort of criticism, but here he he explicitly talked about... M- mental issues, technical issues, and sort of apologizing almost for the performance that that was in that second half. And sort of that that level of critique is sort of informative of where we are currently. Mm. I think talking about those mental issues and those technical issues that we've seen over the last few weeks is something that we're going to get into when we come back in just a second, let's have a break. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, to bottle it is to not do something because you are frightened, or to fail at something because you are frightened. And much of the discourse of the last month or so, as we have stuttered and then stopped in our title charge, is have we bottled it? Have Arsenal bottled it? And while there's been a lot of internet TM around this in recent weeks, I think in asking the question, we can actually have an interesting discussion of where things have gone wrong. So, Max, have we bottled it? Um, yeah, so bottled is... C- clearly becoming one of those things, you know, like world-class or generational where, uh, you know, everyone act, 
acts like they're, you know, like we're having like a, a discussion about the same term, but people have lots of different, you know, interpretations of it. I think no, because for me, you know, with, with the fear in the definition, you know, that you have there, that implies that fear is what stopped us doing it or that we were really, really close to doing it and we, out of fear, failed to do it. I think that argument would hold a lot more water if those games where we really choked were proving to be the difference and they're just not, you know, it's what, what we're seeing is, you know, exactly what we feared when we were top in January, which is city going on a run of, you know, 18 and one and one. Um, and, you know, I, I think also just the fact that I feel like a lot of our worst games have just had like really obvious explanations for how they've gone. You know, like I think, Knowing Saliba and Tomiyasu, you know, were both out for the season at the time. We had a little more hope for Saliba, but just knowing that, I think many people said at the time, you know, it's it's really, really unlikely we go on to do this without Saliba when we still have to go to the Etihad uh, and Anfield. You know, our, our lead over City was five points. Uh, that's a lead of, you know, you can survive one loss or two draws. So you're talking about losing to City and then getting eight wins and even though we didn't get anywhere near eight wins you know uh you know like even if we didn't have a good run-in we still would have needed an amazing run-in either way i think for me the the bottle discussion is just like a little bit of a the the reason i find it a little depressing is that it, it just feels like trying to impose a good story on a very mundane one, which is that we all knew Man City were winning the league. Many people in the Arsenal community said so. Many people outside the Arsenal community said so. You know, we were never going to nick them on goal difference when they have the, you know, record holder for single season scoring. Uh, you know, it's... So I think it's taking a situation where a lot of people, even when we were top with nine games left, thought, yeah, I don't, I don't think Arsenal have the juice. Um, you know, because it unfolded in a way where we, where we had all these bad results, I think it's kind of just trying to make that the story as opposed to the team that we all knew was going to do it, wound up doing it. See, I approach this discussion kind of thinking, so we absolutely stacked it, right? Like... We were on a terrific run of form, incredible momentum, and then it has all fallen to bits for us. And if your personal definition of bottling is just the all it formed, it's all fallen to bits, then yeah, we bottled it. Way, raise a glass, enjoy it, Spurs fans. Um, whatever. But if you like want to look at it. And even if you take, like, the frightened bit into perspective, the fear was quite a big factor in the results that we got, I feel. Like, yeah, yes, Saliba's injury was arguably the defining moment. If not, then Tomiyasu's injury on top of that, compounding it, is. And that's what's turned it, but 
that only compounded the fear of what City could do. I haven't sat down and calculated exactly what we would have needed to do in the run-in to Pip City if they did go on to do what it looks like they're going to do and pick up maximum points, 95 points from this run-in. I think it's something like we would have had to win every other game in our run-in other than that one to City if that was going to be the case, which would have been frankly ridiculous. You said that the fact that us stacking it doesn't matter because City are too good makes it less of a bottle job. I think it kind of makes it more of a bottle job, if that makes sense. Because, like, if you if we'd kind of like lost one and drawn one, as Seven I predicted, with ten games to go, and City had just won every single game, so it didn't matter. Then pfft, what can you do? Fair enough. But the fact that we have stacked it in such a way makes it appear worse, I think. But there are external factors. Seb? Alright. I think it's fair to say that through City's sheer quality and experience also, the margin of error is as slim as it's ever been. I also think it's disingenuous not to call it at the very best throwing it away and at the very worst bottling it. Considering throwing away a two-goal lead against Liverpool, retreating into a very, very defensive shape, throwing away a two-goal lead against West Ham, your goalkeeper passing it to an opposition player in the first minute against the bottom side in the league, those things indicate a level of fear or at least trepidation in your decision making that wasn't present beforehand so obviously there are other explanations to this we can cite the Saliba injury and there's no coincidence that the number of goals we conceded post Saliba has shot up in an insane way um but there's you, you can draw logical explanations to almost everything that happens in football games and every sort of thing we label as a bottle job could logically be explained somehow. Um, I think it's not something you can sort of kill this team with. We've said it, everyone has said it so many mm. times. The youngest team in the league with a 41-year-old manager in his first managerial job in his third full season, second full, third, third full season in charge of a football club. Third. Challenging at a 90-point pace for a large part of this season is insane. It's genuinely crazy. So as much as we can say that this has been the beginning of something good, and it is, in my opinion, that, and that the trajectory is only going one way, it's also disingenuous not to say that this is A, very, very hurtful, and B, a bottle chop. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with all that, you know, and I and I agree, you know, the the Liverpool and and West Ham performances were were very bodily. I think where I come at it is that I find a lot of discussion about, you know, to bottle or not to bottle, I think just greatly exaggerates how much of an advantage Arsenal had going into the run-in. 
And I think even with Saliba and Tomiyasu uninjured, you go into the run-in and you see that Arsenal's lead over City, you know, it's not nothing, but it could easily be a mirage, you know, knowing how City performed in the back half of seasons. Um, you know, I think if it were, you know, there's like a lot of stuff going around of like when we had the eight point lead and the only time we had an eight point lead with equal games played was when 19 games had been played. And so I think, you know, the performances were bodily. I think it's a little bit less unclear that bodily performances cost you the title because what even pre-run-in, pre-catastrophic defensive injuries, it was still, for me, totally on a knife edge. And I just never, I never really saw Arsenal as, you know, the favorites in any way, you know. And, and so I just think a lot of the, you know, discussion about it has kind of acted like, you know, as if Arsenal just had a bigger or more advantageous lead than they really did i think considering you know the the way the fixtures were laid out you know you looked at going into the run and and you were just like yeah this is this is a toss-up you know this is not uh arsenal are in such a good position that it you know that it would take you know a lot to throw it away it was for me still just very much on a knife edge from the beginning i think those two things can coexist though right like yeah had we lost the Etihad game and maybe drawn one more or two more and finished behind City by like two or three points at the end of the season, the sort of general discussion discussion would be geared towards more seeing how incredibly good City are this season. While in the manner that it occurred on the Arsenal side over those last seven games, like nine points from seven games. That's it's understandable why the discussion is currently as it is. The point where the discussion becomes completely unfounded is by saying that this was a sort of once in a lifetime chance and sort of not crediting this team enough for what it did before those last seven games as much as they are currently discrediting us for these seven games that have just occurred. I I think to take a step back and look at the season as a whole, we were the best team in the league before the World Cup. We just were. Like, City had not quite clicked in the way that they have in the run-in, and we were better than them. Since the World Cup, though, even in the period of time where we were on top of the league and we were playing well, there were warning signs that things could go wrong. And some of these things we even pointed out and said, look, this is great. This is going to be, this is part of why we're going to, we could win the league. Like the Bournemouth game, for example, which very, very easily could not have been turned around in the way that it was. And it took an incredible show of strength and character to turn it around. But if we were playing at the incredible level that we were pre-World Cup, the Bournemouth game doesn't take that incredible strength of character and resolve to turn around. 
and there were a few other results before the World Cup that you could say the same thing about. And we said on, on this podcast at the time that it was pretty concerning that we had to use that much mental energy, if you will, to get ourselves over the line in those games. And if we were going to have to keep that up through the season, we probably weren't going to be able to. And I think that's pretty much what's borne fruit. Like, like yes, we stacked it against Liverpool and against West Ham, but that Southampton game was basically a Bournemouth game 2.0 where we weren't able yeah. to finish the job. Yeah. Uh, and when, when you're running at, like, the absolute upper bound of what is possible for, like, three quarters of a season. It's not massively surprising when the final quarter, you drop off a bit. Like, from from a complete cold numbers perspective, but also from, like, those soft factors perspectives of you're running out of steam and you've been performing at like the maximum level for so long months on months on months you're gonna be knackered you're gonna have players fall into bits like we have so there are very large mitigating factors here and i don't think like as much as we were confident on this podcast we were confident one, we were confident, one with the caveat that we didn't think City were going to win 14 in a row, which it looks like they're going to. And two, because we'd seen these perhaps warning signs and looked at them in a positive light rather than a negative one. Uh, so, yeah, you, it's, you could have seen this coming. And with the power of hindsight, we can say... We, we we can take a deep breath and admit defeat, but we, as Seb said, we've got to acknowledge how well we've done. And I think now is the time for wallowing in our misery and being yeah. sad and asking questions like, have we bottled it? But once we get to the end of the season and we look back on what we've achieved, I think we can do so with an incredible amount of pride. I think the biggest through line of how good we were this season has always been on how optimal our conditions are, right? Like in the first half of the season, we were running on more or less perfect conditions around us. We had more or less the entire team fit for a large part of that. Sinchenko was in and out. Um, but that didn't hinder us as much as we thought it might. Um, but as soon as the World Cup hit, we started to lose some pieces. Jesus was out for three months. We had to run with Enketia, which sometimes worked, sometimes didn't work. Holding came in. It's impossible to hold that same level of sort of points pace, basically, with holding as your starting center back instead of Saliba. Finding solutions, not finding solutions. And then sort of compounding that by running at an insane mental pace throughout the first sort of 20 games, which then has a knock-on effect on those last 18. Um, and what that shows more than anything is that this 
cannot be sustained with the numbers of players that are able to play this way we currently have. So the biggest improvement we have to make will be in the summer, bringing in more people, bringing in more secure profiles in roles where we don't have them currently. We need to upgrade technical security in our deep areas. We need to sort of maybe find more devastation in the attacking areas and maybe and most likely, which is the highest thing, uh, prioritizing our midfield and sort of rejigging that area. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I feel like, you know, Arsenal had this season a lot of like very like it's their year things happen, you know, like memorably so, you know, like Inkedia, Jorginho, Reese Nelson, late goals, you know. But we also had a lot of things that just don't really happen to teams that go and smash and grab a title off a super club. You know, we, you know, it just takes really everything to go your way. And, you know, Liverpool getting, you know, 36, 37 game seasons out of Sadio Mane and Mo Salah, you know, City having a, you know, a center back injury crisis in uh, 1920, you, you know, it really just takes a lot of things like that to go your way. And even while in the individual games, I think Arsenal ran very hot and avoided banana peels at a rate that we, I really don't think will next season. Like, I think it's very easy to see a world next season where we get fewer points than this season, but we have still improved. Um, you know, so a lot of that stuff in game went for, you know, broke our way. We got a lot of bounces, you know, we got a lot of calls that we didn't expect to get, um, you know, fine margins like that. Gabriel escaping a penalty, you know, in, in the home game against Liverpool, things like that really went our way. But you also, you know, you really just need even more than that because winning the league is just a bigger ask than it's ever been. Um, and if you can't, if you, this already small squad, you know, if you can't get the absolute maximum availability-wise out of them, then you are really back to looking a lot like an edge-of-top-four team. You know, we only added three first-team additions last summer, and all three of them have had long, meaningful absences from the team this year. And so it's, you know, it's really easy to see you know, the days when it really looked like, wow, they're going to do it. And the days where it looks like, okay, well, this stuff doesn't happen to you in your, you know, in your sudden league win season. Yeah, I think that, like, question of luck is quite an interesting one. I remember around the World Cup, I can't remember if it was just before or just afterwards, a friend of the show and Bane of... <laughs> Arsenal fans on Twitter, Aaron Manise said that we were lucky to have, be top of the league and be where we were. And there was a lot of like, no, 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 we are really good. We are the best team in the league. And we were. But Aaron's point wasn't that we were... What wasn't that there was games that we were lucky to win. It was that in going... 10, 15, 20 games where you win all of them and don't get footballed, that in and of itself is lucky. And 
the fact that we were able to go on this incredible run and as i said run at like the upper bound of what is possible for so long like that is pretty lucky of us and as you say like we had some things where the bounces did go for us and some things where we've got unlucky but that's just life that's that's the balance of how things go over a season it would be ridiculously lucky for of us to have got that perfect scenario where no one gets injured all the way through and we can keep playing our starting 11 every single week all the way through the run-in. Like, that would have been, like, absurd luck to have that opportunity. Even if, like, looking at individual games, we may have won each one deservedly. And I think, like, it's kind of that kind of swings around swings and roundabouts type of thing where we've had bad luck that everyone gets at some point over the course of the season strike us at the perfect inopportune moment to make us stack it in the run-in of a title race. And it is what it is. Yeah, you have to be really lucky and really good. You know, it's not enough to just be one of them. Mm. I think... We have successfully answered the question of did Arsenal bottle it? And the answer is... Sort of. Yes. The answer is, yeah, but... Can you... <laughs> yes, but can you blame us? <laughs> I suppose is the answer we've come up yeah, with. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good place to net out. I don't know. We've got two games left for the rest of this season. And we're not going to finish third. And we're not going to finish first. So we've eventually got two dead rubbers to finish off the season. What do you guys want to see from the team from these next two games? It's tough because I... It's it's very easy to say, like, I only want to see players who are going to be a big part of next season. It's all about the future now. At the same time, I truthfully could not handle it if we did not win both of these games like that would just suck so bad um and winning winning games is ultimately about the fun of winning games um you know outcome aside i think we need to deliver two wins um i wouldn't mind using the opportunity to see a bit more of Vieira um in whatever role we find most likely to be his role next season um, a lot of the stuff is obviously linked to transfers. You know, are we planning on buying two big midfielders or just one? Um, but yeah, Vieira, I would like to see more of. I, you know, I think this will be really telling as to whether the writing is on the wall for Smith Rowe. I think you can read a lot into the minutes Smith Rowe has got. I think he's gotten kind of like prove me wrong minutes, you know, like. Uh, we're not even chasing a game. Like, the game is miles ahead of us, but fine, go and prove me wrong. You know, go get a goal, do something, you know, against Man City, uh, against Brighton. And so I kind of think if you if you don't see a lot of him in the next two games, then you probably have your answer um, as to where that's going. Um, and then I would also, you know, I would like to see more of anyone who we hope can be strong rotation next season, I would love to see some rotation now. Like I, if we think Inkedia 
is good enough to, you know, not to rotate proactively, not just to be our, our presence at center forward if Jesus is out. You know, th- these guys really, you know, we don't want to wait until we need them to use them. And I think that's a big lesson from this season. Um, I, I vary on like how much I think it would have changed things more rotation, but I think you, you know, we know that we have, we have players who are going to be bench players for Arsenal, but you know, you are at the mercy of the competence of your bench players a lot. And, you know, I would like to see just a little bit more of, um, not just them, but them in a role that we think we're likely to play next season, you know? So like Fabio Vieira at eight, you know, things like that. I would really love to see. Yeah. I basically much, I basically completely agree with that. Um, there aren't very many players that we can swap out. We don't really have much left. Um, the biggest thing is, in my opinion, Smith Rowe and maybe giving him what a start or something to at least stake his claim somewhat, preferably as a left aid or a right aid, considering, uh, depending on where you see him, if you see him anywhere near this team. But apart from that, there's not many sort of future-proofing players we can sort of blood in now, other than maybe a Fabio Vieira, who isn't really a stylistic fit to the left of those aids, but you could maybe blood in more in that right aid slot if you were to drop Odegaard, which I'm not really sure we're going to do that. But yeah, my, my biggest interest for the last games would basically be what happens with Emil Smith-Rowe and where where do we see him if we see him here. Mm. Do you think there is um, any scope for giving Reese Nelson minutes and trying to convince him that no, he is a part of this team and should stay? Or do you think that ship has sailed? I- I'm not sure there there's opportunities to convince him now. And I completely understand his reasoning in wanting to become a more sort of established first team starter for a club and he's more than capable of doing that he's been my biggest surprise this season to a point where i was more than happy to see him stay at arsenal and become one of those attacking players in whichever role he was gonna end up playing um but i as far as it seems now i don't think he will be here next season regardless of what happens in the last two games. I think those conversations have been had. Fair enough, Max? Yeah, I I agree that I don't think the last two games will change anything. I also wouldn't rule out a U-turn contract-wise, just because I was thinking about it the other day, and I'm trying to think of players who uh, Arteta wanted to keep, who he wasn't able to keep, and I was coming up short. It feels like he really gets his way. Um, you know, Balagoon was out the door and Kedia was out the door. Um, you know, and so I could see a world where, um, you know, in a, in a shock twist, Nelson signs a new contract, but I think that will happen completely independently of, of the last two games. You know, I, I think any convincing will, you know, will just be at the negotiating table. And I, it sounds like Arsenal have offered him a new deal, which I would like. Maybe it's not as long or as lucrative. 
um, as he's looking for. Um, but yeah, so I, I wouldn't rule anything out, but but I, I don't really think, you know, his minutes against Wolves and Forrest are going to have an impact one way or another. I think he's in that weird position where with Balogun and Patino, who apparently want to leave, and I very much hope that's not the case with both of them, they're sort of at an age where you can sell them the idea of coming into Arsenal as a sort of squad player and rotate themselves into playing more and more minutes. I think Reese is at a point in his career where his main concern will be playing continuously. And I don't think anyone would begrudge him taking that opportunity elsewhere because he'll get really good offers. This is a discussion for another pod, but I feel like the problem with Patino in particular is that I don't think he's good enough to come in and play minutes now. Like, uh, Collings knows way more about him than I do. He was watching him all through the youth teams. But, like, from the evidence that I've seen of him getting bit part minutes in the championship at Blackpool, I feel like if he came into the team now, he'd kind of... He'd have similar struggles to what Fabio Vieira is having in terms of physicality um, without that proven ability of playing decent minutes for a championship championship champions league club that uh, fabio Vieira has with his time at porto last season so i i feel like patino is at least one good lots of minutes loan away from being a first team player for arsenal so i think it probably is quite likely that he leaves if he wants first team or nout at the moment but my last question on that note of Patino is, is there any youth team players that you would like to get some garbage minutes in these last couple games that you can think of? I know Collings would... If if Collings were here, making it sound like he's dead, uh, if Collings were here... Such a shame about I, Collings. That's, I, I can't yeah. believe it. God, the, these birthday parties, they're risky endeavours, but... <laughs> too soon, if, too soon. <laughs> if he was here... I would put money on him saying that he'd want Raw Walters to get some minutes at centre-back, given the issues we've been having, uh, and the fact that there is an open slot at right centre-back for somebody to go and play some minutes. So I reckon Collings would want him to play either there or at right-back and Ben White to move over, and I feel like I'd quite like to see that at some point, even if it is 10 minutes at the end of the Wolves game when we're 2-0 up with however much left to go uh, is there anyone that you guys would like to see some of um yeah i mean i think 10 minutes left to go against wolves is fine for rule walters um i would be curious i ca- i kind of just don't see a defender really coming up at arsenal to be honest i think if someone is that good you kind of you you know, you know about it well in advance, and we're being linked to like Mark Gehi uh, and things like that. I kind of think if that, you know, th- this would be a good time, you know, to see a little bit of Patino, I think. But in defense, I just think it's a much riskier thing uh, to, you know, to give that first appearance. Um, and I don't, I just don't really get the sense that Rural Walters is someone who. We are really invested in, you know, building a runway for at Arsenal. I could be wrong about that, but I just, 
I think next season, you know, I think at the transfer window, it's it's really going to be about building a large, very technical, um, you know, stable of defenders. And I think Rule Walters, if he stays, is going to find he's like eighth in the pecking order or something. So I'd be curious, and I'm not I'm not against it. Um, I think with Arsenal youth players, if they don't want to go on loan, your hands are just a little bit tied. Um, I would love to see Balogun go on loan to like a Brighton or something. Well, they have Ferguson, but um, uh, you know, I would love to see Patino in a in a Premier League loan, um, or or even just a better Championship loan than the one he had. But if they if they really want, you know, a home, I don't think there's that much you could do. Um, so, I I can't think of anyone who's currently in our squad who I'm really dying to see more of. I I do feel like if Inkedia is going to be part of the team next season, we need to figure out how to integrate him more effectively than we've done. Um, you know, I think there's been like one or two points when Inkedia and Jesus have been on at the same time, and I think we've looked pretty good. Um, and that you know any. He played a big part in this season, and then he, you know, he got injured and was kind of usurped by Trossard. Um, but he is someone who I, I expect to stay, um, and so I would, I would just like to see, just like a little bit of pragmatism there, and just you know, he's he's part of the squad. He's someone, if you're okay calling on him in a crisis, you should be looking at ways to call on him when you're not in a crisis. Anything to add, Seb? Not really. I do think uh, Ru Walters, from everything you hear, might be like the next guy up out of the youth academy. I mean, he got the athletic treatment. That's always a sort of dead giveaway. But I also like him. Um, and were we to get those those trash minutes against Wolves, I wouldn't be against him. I think outside of the the academy i think it's important to give continuity to kvo to truly you know settle into the team and build that for next season um but other than that Neri seems like he's going off so not really necessary there and every other player is out on loan I do want to build on that on the Balogun point because I think he would be a very very interesting player currently to have, and I'm also I also have the theory that he might be the better fit profile wise for the forward group than Ketia is, and I think we have a decision to make there in the summer of how we prioritize there. Fair enough. We'll leave the discussion there because we've been talking for a long old time and I've got to edit this, so uh, we'll cut it there. Uh, before we close, I do have a trivia book question and given we've been discussing how we could fit in strikers from the youth team, I think I found the perfect question to ask. How many goals did Nicholas Bentner score for Arsenal? A, 50, B, 65, C, 47, or D, 62? Oh. Max is the guest. You can go first. Um, I'm just going to choose the upper limit, because why not? 62. Seb? What were the other options? Uh, A, 50, B, 65, C, 47, or D, 62. 
I'm gonna go for forty-seven. I'm going on reload. Seb is correct. Forty-seven goals for Arsenal for Nicholas Bentner, and that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us, Max. You definitely haven't bottled your second pot shot appearance. If people want to find more of you, where can they do so? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Asna underscore Maz. Thank you so much for having me. This is always a blast. No worries at all. And if you want to find that, that will be in the description alongside a couple links to interesting tweets about the Brighton game. Thanks as always to Seb. If people want more of you, where can they find you? You can do your own outro. Why not? What a gift. You can find me at Eulenberg underscore on Twitter. You can find me on the Joe Bonita podcast, which a new episode will appear shortly. Um, and otherwise, God save Lord Bentham. Indeed. It, it always amuses me how Collings pronounces your, um, your Twitter handle. Yeah, it's a Eulenberg. problem for every English speaker. Not me. I did GCSE German. I got a B. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can find the podcast on Twitter at PotshotPod. Thank you very much to James Blake, who makes our music. You can find him on all good music platforms at JWBlake. Alex Collings said last week that he makes jazz music. No, he doesn't, but he does have a new single out, so go and find that on Spotify. Uh, we will be back next week for a discussion of the Forest game where Eddie Nketiah is going to start and score seven goals. We'll see you for that. Cheers. <laughs>